Now, during this hour, we want to continue our current series on tithing versus grace giving. What an appropriate series for this part of the country, let alone for believers in general. What saith the scriptures for today? And during this hour, we're going to begin to explore some principles on grace giving as we ask and answer the question, do you understand these principles of grace giving? But before we go to 1 Corinthians 16, let me invite you to open your Bibles with me to the book of Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2. Now, we devoted two messages last Sunday to the truth about tithing. And in doing so, we went verse after verse after verse throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament from Genesis to Revelation and looked at every reference almost to tithing that's found there, as well as we noted this concept of free will offerings, not only in the Old Testament, but also in the New And you see, the basic principle about giving that we walked away with was this, that the underlying pattern of giving has been basically the same throughout history involving required or mandatory giving, a form of taxation for believers and unbelievers alike, and free will or grace giving or voluntary giving for believers only. And as we walk through all these verses on tithing last time. Remember what we did is we just went from a passage to pass, and we just made observations. Another observation, another observation. We underscored some things in our mind. And it was in some ways exhausting looking at all of these verses. But in doing so, I did not take the time to categorize or systematize our findings. So on the onset of this message, I want to do that by way of review to lay the issue of tithing for grace age believers to bed. So let me give you a summary of tithing. And again, your handouts will be helpful here. And also, um, they are available on the internet, if I recall correctly. Is that true, Dale? Is it on Sermonati or YouTube or both? Both. Okay, very good. First thing we noticed was tithing was contrasted with free will offerings in the Old Testament. You see both of those being taught in light of that basic pattern of giving that I underscored just a couple moments ago. Now, I say that because... It's ironic how you will hear different people preach about tithing. I remember one Baptist preacher, I heard him say, the first bill you need to pay every week is your bill to God. You know, and it was just this mandatory, pay your 10%. And in some churches, the real issue isn't tithing. The issue is gross or net. That's the question that they struggle with. Second principle, Tithing or 10% is totally absent as a mandate or mode of giving in the New Testament. Epistles for the church. In fact, the word tithe is totally absent from those epistles, except mentioned in Hebrews 7 in reference to Abraham giving a tithe to Melchizedek. You know, that's stunning. 
I mean, if God wanted us to tithe, would we not see that mentioned at least a few times in the epistles, but there's none to be found, as it were. Principle number three, tithing was a mandatory and obligatory tax of 10% upon all adult citizens, believers and unbelievers, of the children of Israel. Please note that. As a national form of taxation under the law, while free will offerings are voluntarily done by believers out of gratitude to the Lord and to support the work of the Lord without any specific percentage required. Now that's very important to note that. And I say that because we see this example of a free will offering when it came to the giving for the tabernacle. And they gave so willingly, they were moved in their heart. There was no percentage. There was a specific list of things they could bring. And the giving was so great that finally, Moses had to tell them, quit giving. Cease and desist. I mean, it's amazing how grace giving can, in so many ways, outgive tithing when understood correctly and people are motivated accordingly as they give, not as unto the law, but as unto the Lord, as it were. Now keep in mind, the church is not a nation. Tithing was a national tax. And the church is not a nation like Israel under law, but consists of believers in Christ from various nations as an international or transnational entity under grace. You know, I remember a number of years ago, one of my nieces, they were trying out a, a church. Um, and in doing so, she was like seven or eight at the time. and She was in Sunday school. And they were teaching about giving that day. And in doing so, she had a little picture. And there was 10 pennies on there. And the question was, how many of these pennies belong to God? And she circled the whole thing. And the teacher said, no, 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 no. It's, it's, it's one of those ten. And I thought, you know, my seven-year-old niece was more biblically literate than the teacher. Because you see, it all belongs to the Lord, doesn't it? God simply leads us accordingly. As he has prospered us, as we'll see in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 2 today, to give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for the Lord loves a cheerful giver. A fourth thing we notice is tithing under the law consisted of three different tithes. First of all, there was what's called the Levitical tithe, which was 10% yearly to support the priests and Levites for their tabernacle, temple ministry, since they were not given an inheritance of land like the other tribes of Israel were given. Secondly, there was the festival tithe another 10% to pay for putting on and enjoying national feasts. And then thirdly, there is the local poor tithe of crops and produce, 10% every third year to provide for the needs of the stranger, the foreigner in the land, who could not own land, by the way, as well as the orphan and the widow, in other words, people that were in need. And so the... When you 
tally this all up and you calculate this, you have 23 and a third percent, I shouldn't say, yes, yearly, of obligatory, mandatory, non-voluntary taxation called tithing. And also an additional government taxes once the kings began ruling, which again Samuel warned him about there in 1 Samuel chapter 8. The fifth thing we notice is tithing, which involved obedience to the law because the law demanded it, was rewarded by God with physical blessings and abundance in keeping with Deuteronomy 28. While believers under grace giving are not promised the same physical blessings under grace, but have been blessed with all spiritual blessings and various amounts of physical blessings. You see, the early church comprised or was comprised of a lot of servants or slaves that were poor. In addition to that, Paul writes Timothy and saying, having food and raiment, let us therewith be content. So there's this difference under grace. We're blessed with all spiritual blessing and some physical. Under law, if they were obedient, they were blessed with physical blessing in abundance, where God said he would open the windows of heaven, as it were, but they weren't blessed with all spiritual blessings like we are in the heavenly places in Christ. They were given forgiveness. They were given eternal life. They were given regeneration. But they knew nothing about being in Christ and all the blessings attached to that. A sixth thing we note is to not pay your tithe as an adult Jew under the law in support of the priests and Levites was to rob God who required these tithes to be faithfully done by the whole nation. And I say that because, again, it's a national tax for believers and unbelievers. And God says, you've been robbing me because you haven't been paying it. You need to bring your tithes to the storehouse. And again, people have wrenched that verse out of its Jewish context under the law and said the local church is the storehouse and if you would give to God and bring it to the local church, then God is going to open the windows of heaven and you are going to be so blessed that you'd never want to invest in Wall Street or in gold or silver because God is going to do you better. And that is just not the biblical context or thinking of the passage. Number seven, tithing or law-keeping was never a means of justification before God, nor was it necessarily a reflection of true spirituality among religious individuals. Remember, in the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee, the Pharisee says, I tithe of all that I possess. He was relying on his tithing for righteousness before God. And remember, there was the tax collector who was beating on his breast, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Treat me in mercy like you would in view of the mercy seat of God. And he said, that man went down to his house, what? Justified. Justified. Declared righteous before God. Not the tither, the non-tither, yea, the tax collector, as it were. On the other hand, we know from Amos 
as well as Matthew 23, 23, that even when they gave tithes, that wasn't necessarily an indication of true spirituality because the Pharisees did it, Matthew 23, 23. And we know that they weren't spiritual people. In fact, most of them weren't even saved, let alone a spiritual believer in the true sense of the word. And so we need to be clear about these issues of tithing. You know, um, I heard a pastor say, you know, I believe in grace giving. I tell people that tithing just the bottom floor. It's not the ceiling. That's where you start. That's not where you end. I was going to say, what verse of scripture was that? But I didn't. I know another story where a believer friend of mine said he was talking to a very famous pastor, actually, in the Midwest. And the pastor said, I know tithing isn't for the church today, but it works. And I thought, there's the pragmatic approach instead of the principled approach. And by the way, when you begin to think about law versus grace, and Israel versus the church, keep in mind that in the New Testament, the word Israel always means Israel. (laughs) What a profound statement. Now, I say that because even as I think of that principle number seven there, or observation number seven, I want to call your attention to the book of Galatians, and in doing so, verse 15. Now, the context here is Peter is actually rebuking or being rebuked by Paul. And he says, We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. Now we recognize that God is holy and man is sinful. And there is this chasm that separates us of spiritual death. But we know the good news is that God sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the Lamb of God to shed his blood and to die in our place. And thus Jesus suffered God's wrath in your place and in mine. And in how we are justified before God, it is not by the works of the law, which would include tithing. And so keep in mind, a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Why? Because he's the one who died for our sins. He's the one who rose from the dead. He's the only Savior God ever provided. He is the one mediator between God and man. Even we have what believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be what justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. Very, very clear. And I say that because today, there are people who think that they are going to heaven because of giving. They think they've because they've given money to a church or they've been benevolent in charities, that maybe they think that would gain brownie points with God. That is not the plan of grace. Grace speaks of undeserved kindness and favor. But there are others who would say, well, it's not a matter of giving money. It's a matter of giving your life to Christ. 
And again, we see it's not by giving, it's by receiving that we're saved. It's not giving our life to Christ. It's because he gave his life for us. So we see in verse 21, Galatians 2, I do not frustrate or make void the grace of God, for if righteousness comes by the law and it doesn't, then Christ is dead in vain. You see, if you could be justified before God based on something you've done for God, then guess what? Jesus Christ died for nothing. There would have been another way of salvation. And in doing so, what you're failing to understand is the righteousness of God. The righteousness that God is, the righteousness that God demands, the righteousness we do not have, the righteousness that God imputes to our account because we put our faith in Jesus Christ. And as a result, the righteousness he now can produce in our life by way of sanctification in light of that justification on our way to glorification. You see... If, if the top diagram describes you, you are not yet a believer in Jesus Christ. You are not yet saved. Because in your mind, you're still working your way there. But when you understand it's finished and that Christ did 100% of the work, then by faith in him alone, you can rest in his finished work and know beyond the shadow of a doubt you're going to heaven because of who he is and what he's done. Now, keep in mind that the book of Galatians is written so that you would understand and I would understand that the law cannot justify the sinner nor sanctify the saint. So go with me to Galatians chapter 5. In Galatians chapter 5, he makes an appeal to these believers. And what does he say in verse 1? Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. Free from what? Free from the bondage of sin, but also freedom from the law. And do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. What's the yoke of bondage? It's the law. Even though the law is holy and just and good, it becomes a yoke of bondage because we cannot keep it. It can demand righteousness, but it cannot produce righteousness. It can demand that we are good, but it cannot produce the goodness in us, and thus it condemns us ultimately. Verse 2, indeed I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. Now, circumcision was the first initial act of entering into Judaism, as it were. And you see, there were false teachers that came along and they were putting these believers under the law, as it were. And they were saying that message Paul preached, you know what, it was really good. He just didn't tell you the whole thing. That now as a believer, you need to keep the law. And you need to get circumcised. And you need to tithe. And you need to keep the Sabbath. And you need to whatever. And you know, that's law-keeping legalism, that may not be true for first tense, but now it becomes true for so-called second tense salvation. And it's a yoke of bondage. 
Now, one of the things that people try to do when they get around this is they try to say the law had three parts to it, the moral law, the uh, social law, and the, I'm thinking of the third kind of law, three aspects of law. And you see, they'll say, well, the moral law is still for today, but again, the rituals and things, the sacrifices are not. Well, wait a second. It is true, the nine out of the ten laws, if you want to say that, of the Ten Commandments, nine of the Ten Commandments, are repeated under grace. The only one that's not repeated is the Sabbath. But the way it's approached is totally different. It's not obey and you'll be blessed. It's you've been blessed. Now, walk by faith in who you are in Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. And as that's true, a practical righteousness will be produced in your life in which you don't lie and you don't steal and you don't cheat and you don't do whatever. Now, I say that because the law is an indivisible unit, verse 3. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he's a debtor to keep what? The whole law, all 613 facets. You can't pick and choose. Now, that's not to say that under grace there aren't similarities to the law. In fact, Dave, can you come up here for a minute? Okay. I'm going to use Dave as an illustration. He didn't know this, by the way. When I would use my son at home, I always gave him a little bit of money. One of his friends came up to me one day and said, Mr. Roxer, if you pay me less, I would still do it, you know. <laughs> so let's take a look at Dave and myself. Are there similarities here? You see some similarities? Both have heads and ears and eyes. We both have arms. We're both male, even, right? But do you see any differences? Yeah. And you see, when it comes to law, and you're going to be law today, that when it comes to the law, it came from God. And it had moral principles in it. But so did grace came from God and has some moral principles in it. But because their similarity doesn't mean they're identical. Because they're not. There's a lot of differences, as you can see. And in the same way, thank you. You can get your $5 later. That uh, used to be $1. I've upped it under. That you would see a difference. It's an indivisible Unit. Verse 4, you have become estranged from Christ. You who attempt to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. Now notice the word, you become estranged from Christ. I really like that translation. Because when someone's estranged, they're still in the relationship. They just aren't in a good, close, intimate relationship. They're estranged. And he's not saying here that those of you who have slipped back into legalism and law thinking, you're not saved anymore, you lost it, you have fallen from grace as if you could lose your salvation. Not true. In fact, what's interesting is normally when people say that, you know, you go out and lay one on the town, you're going to fall from grace. Remember, he's addressing here not the down and outer, he's addressing the up and outer. He's addressing the people who are trying to keep the law. And he says, you have fallen from the principle of grace. Because now you've put yourself under this legalistic 
approach to Christian living in which you now are indebted to keep all the law, you've become estranged from Christ. You know what that means? That you are not enjoying intimate fellowship with the Lord. And legalistic believers don't do that because they're always evaluating their Christian life based on what they're doing instead of who they're responding to. And are they walking by faith? And therefore, you know, again, as I've said before, with some churches, you come in and, you know, if you don't do the filthy five and the nasty nine and the dirty dozen and you tithe and you do this and that, you are deacon material in six months. And they fail to realize you can be just as pharisaical as the day is long. And that God is looking at your heart. He's looking how you're responding to him based on the work of his son, and now your identity or position in Jesus Christ. You have fallen from grace, not in the sense of loss of salvation, impossible based on numerous other verses in the Bible, but you have fallen from grace, and when people indeed get in legalistic churches, they get pressured about tithing, and they get pressured about this and that. Or even church membership. You know, isn't it funny? And I, I've said this before, but it bears repeating. In a lot of these churches you go in, unless you are a baptized member, and you sign on the dotted line, and you promise to keep the covenant, which means you don't drink, and you don't smoke, and you don't tattle. You know, I always have to laugh when I see this, don't tattle. How many believers out there are like, you know, I was thinking about tattling today, but I remember I signed on the dotted line. I don't think I'll tattle. Maybe we could have the don't tattle support systems, you know. I mean, how goofy does this all get? But as a result, they won't let you serve, quote, in the church until you're a member. And you can't be a member until you do da-da-da-da-da-da. But isn't it funny how they'll still let you give? They won't say, and by the way, if you're not a member of our church, don't give today. They don't say that, do they? Now, what we oftentimes have done in the past at Duluth Bible, as well as I've mentioned a few times here, is the fact that, you know, if someone's visiting and they're not saved, please don't give. Be our guest and let us minister to you because the first issue isn't giving, it's receiving. And only after you're saved is you can pray about this and think this through and give gratefully as unto the Lord. Do those principles come into play? Now, I know someone told me once, oh, that's just reverse psychology. You tell them, don't give, and that'll motivate them more. I used to even say years ago, I used to say, and I got this from my pastor, and by the way, if you gave out of the wrong motives, you know, just hit us up later, we'll give you a rebate. Well, a guy did. Fortunately, he only gave about 190 bucks, so it wasn't very difficult to pay it back, as it were. But I quit saying that after a while because I wasn't into rebates. Now, as we think of grace, don't you love grace? God's riches at Christ's expense. We're justified before God by grace. We're eternally secure by grace. We have this position in grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We live the Christian life by grace. We serve by grace. One day, we'll stand before the Lord all by his amazing grace so that Paul would say, I am my, what I am by the grace of God. And you know, thinking of that, our February conference here a month or so ago was so enriching 
So good to hear grace-oriented Bible exposition. Not a lot of places in the country where you can hear that kind of thing. And we just thank the Lord for that and look forward, should the Lord tarry, to do it again next year. See, grace is not natural to our thinking. And this is why we must grow in grace even when it comes to grace giving. So with a biblical understanding regarding tithing, along with seeing that the believer in Christ is not under law, but under grace, let's begin learning 14 scriptural principles about grace giving. So turn with me now to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. 1 Corinthians chapter 16. As we think of the book of 1 Corinthians, someone has divided here on divisions in the church, chapters 1 through 4, disorders in the church, chapters 5 and 6, and difficulties in the church, chapters 7 through 16. We know they were in Christ, but they were carnal. At least that's what characterized them, 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 4. And they were having, again, division. I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Christ. And so he addresses that. But then beginning in chapter 7, he begins answering some questions that perhaps the house of Chloe gave him from these Corinthian believers. And in doing so, he says in chapter 7, verse 1, now concerning the things about which you wrote. And you see that phrase, now concerning, is a little Greek phrase called peride, in which it introduces a subject. A subject that could be related to the previous thing, but not necessarily. You see it again in 725, now concerning virgins. In 8.1, now concerning things sacrificed to idols. Chapter 12, verse 1, now concerning spiritual gifts. And here in chapter 16 and verse 1, now concerning the collection for the saints. So we begin in verse 1. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also. On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. And when I come, whomever you approve by your letters, I will send to bear your gift to Jerusalem. But if it is fitting that I go also, they will go with me. Now, one of the complaints among people is the church is always talking about and wanting your money. And frankly, I agree with that sentiment. In many churches, that's all they, they repeatedly are drumming money, 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 give, give, give. On the other hand, the Bible does speak about money and it speaks about giving. And as a, your pastor, I want to faithfully teach the whole counsel of God. And that's why I'm teaching on this issue I'm not going to pressure you about giving, though God may convict you in this series. There'll be no special offering at the end of the service after I worked you up into an emotional lather of some kind. You're not going to hear, for $50, you can get free gift offer. Well, if it's free, why is it 50 bucks then? I mean, all these 
gimmicks that Christianity has been marred by. I'm not going to guilt you, but I'm going to teach you as that is my responsibility before the Lord. And as we think of these principles about grace giving, principle number one, grace giving is designed to be an act of worship toward God and faithful stewardship of what he has graciously given to you. It is not designed for you to impress others. Notice again, grace giving is designed to be an act of worship toward God. Now, you might be looking at this passage saying, where is that found? Well, it's embedded in the beginning of verse 2. On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. You see, worship is giving God the glory to his name, to give honor and praise and glory to God for who he is and what he has done. And you see, on the first day of the week is when the church gathered. And what did the church do when they they gathered? Well, first and foremost, they worshipped. They worshipped God. Secondly, they edified and equipped the saints. Thirdly, they evangelized the lost in the building, wherever they were gathering. And mostly as they spread, we gather to worship, we spread to evangelize, as it were. And what is the church to do when they gather? Again, they're involved in worship. What would be involved? Singing praise to the Lord or praying to the Lord or reading the scriptures or preaching the word. And and also there was giving and fellowship. And that's why the instructions are on the first day of the week that they're to put something aside that there be no collections when I come. There was grace giving related to a collection. Now keep in mind, giving is first and foremost to be an act of worship to the Lord. And we learned in our first two studies in this series on tithing versus grace giving, that it's important to remember that God owns it all. Psalm 24.1, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. We saw also in 1 Chronicles 29, yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor for everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, O Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. But who am I? And who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you, and we have given you only what comes from your hand. You see, everything we have has come from the Lord. And that's why he reminds them in Deuteronomy 8, verses 17 and 18, when they're about to go into the land, that don't you get puffed up. Don't you forget the hand that gave you what you have, as he says that God gives us the power or ability to get wealth and we are but stewards of the time and the truth and the talents and the treasures that God gives us to manage and use them for his glory and purposes. Deuteronomy 8, 17, 
you may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. And don't you forget that. When you get a pay raise, remember, that was from the Lord. Now, keep in mind that being a good employee may have factored into that. And, you know, it was said of Joseph several, several times that he found favor in the eyes of Potiphar and whatever. But part of the reason he found favor was because he was a submissive, hardworking, reliable, responsible slave slash employee, per se. And that factored in. Now, thinking of our stewardship, we're reminded it's required that stewards are found faithful. And so what God has given to us, he's given to us for us to enjoy, as well as for us to provide for the needs of others and to give accordingly. And that's why when it comes to worship, keep in mind that our Lord Jesus Christ made it very clear in, to the woman at the well of all people. But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Notice repeated twice are the phrase spirit and truth. Spirit is talking about what's going on in the inside. Truth is that we're worshiping in response to the word of God. I say that because sometimes what's called worship is just a whole lot of shaking going on. And it's not really true to scripture. In fact, it may be downright heretical. It might be mesmerizing music in which people are being just hypnotically almost wooed into certain actions or things. It's not in spirit and in truth. On the other hand, when it's in spirit and truth, it's not some perfunctory religious thing with a lot of liturgical gypsum and flopsum either. You see, true worship always starts internally and it's a response towards the Lord. And that would even include giving. It's not externally. In fact, I'll tell you this. When churches put the emphasis on the external instead of the internal... And there's a lot of, you know, idols in the building. There's a lot of smoke sensors. There's a lot of whatever. I can tell you that isn't what worship is at all. The more you have to appeal to the eye gate, the less you're appealing to the ear gate. And as a result, you are emphasizing the visible versus the invisible. And you see real worship is what's going on invisibly, though it may overflow visibly by way of singing and so forth and so forth. I can remember reading Warren Wiersbe commenting on his worship in his book on it. I think he called it playground, battleground, or something else ground. And he said he was going into, a, into a, the auditorium of a church one day and the usher hands him a bulletin and he says something to the effect, well, have fun. And Warren Wiersbe looked at him and it says, I am not here to have fun. I am here to worship the Lord. <laughs> but I thought, isn't that the thinking of today? They're there to entertain the goats instead of feeding the sheep and having true worship. 
It's so often the case. And when it's all over, people feel good, but have they been fed? They feel good, but is it going to help them on Monday? They feel good, but has it really enhanced their relationship with the Lord? They could have gone to a rock concert to get the feel good if they wanted it. Or even save the money and just watch it on YouTube. And that's why when we come together like we are today, it's good for us to ask, why am I here? Am I here to worship the Lord first and foremost? And flowing out of that will be fellowship. Flowing out of that will be a number of other things. Now keep in mind as we think of worship that we are believers under grace. And as a result, we are believer priests. Unlike that select Levitical priesthood under the law. Only certain people could be priests under the law. Under grace, every believer is a priest. And what do priests do, among other things? They offer sacrifices in worship to God. So turn with me to Philippians chapter 4 for a moment. Philippians chapter 4. And while you're turning there, I'm going to remind you of Hebrews 13, verses 15 and 16. What does it say? Therefore, by him, Jesus Christ, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. But do not forget to do good and to share, for with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. Among the various things the priests did, they offered sacrifices. And as a believer priest, we are privileged to offer the sacrifice of praise to God, being the fruit of our lips. It kind of starts in our hearts and comes out our lips. As well as don't forget to do good and to share. For with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. Thinking of that in Philippians chapter 4, we begin in verse 13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well that you shared in my distress. You see, Paul had needs as a missionary. By the way, he was bivocational in the sense that he was a tent maker. But oftentimes that wasn't enough. Or in some cases he was in prison. So we see that they did well. They shared in my distress, verse 15. Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, which is, this is going to tie into 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, on grace giving, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. The Philippian church gave to meet Paul's need. For even in Thessalonica, you sent aid once and again for my what? Necessities. My necessities. Not that I seek the gift. That's not what I was really looking for. But I seek that the fruit that abounds to your account. You see, grace giving for right reasons is considered by God fruit in the believer's life. Verse 18, indeed, I have all and abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable what? Sacrifice, 
well-pleasing to God. Again, there is Old Testament imagery here. Because again, when the sacrifice would be offered, the smoke would come up, and there were times when the Bible would say, it was a sweet aroma in the nostrils of God, per se. Same idea. And he says, as you give as unto the Lord to meet the needs of others, I view that as an act of worship towards God. And I want you to know, as I'm smelling it, it smells good. It smells good. This is why, as a believer, you must learn 1 Corinthians 10.31 thinking. Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to what? The glory of God. Or as Colossians 3.23 says, And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men. Would that not be true of giving as well? And that is why we give as unto the Lord. We don't give to be seen of men. Remember that the Lord Jesus warned about this in the Sermon on the Mount. We read, take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds. King James was alms before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your father in heaven. Now, keep in mind, salvation is a gift. Rewards are given to faithful believers in light of their works. Verse 2, therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they have glory from men. So notice it's not merely what you're doing, but the motive behind what you're doing. They wanted glory. They wanted praise. They wanted honor from men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. What was their reward? They wanted to be seen of men, and guess what? They got seen by men. You're not going to get a reward from the Lord. You already got your reward. Verse 3, but when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be done or may be in secret, and your father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. And by the way, the reward doesn't happen till later, right? At the judgment seat of Christ for the church age believers. Now, as we think of that, keep in mind so that in your giving, first of all, you do it as unto the Lord. You do it as an act of worship to him. And that's what's going on on the first day of the week. Now, you might ask the question, well, why did they gather on the first day of the week and why not on the seventh day, the Sabbath? Well, the reason is, is because they were celebrating or commemorating the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Luke 24, verse 1, Now, on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they and certain other women with them came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, then they went in and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And it happened as they were greatly perplexed about this, that behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. And those two men were angels. But notice, when did this happen? On the first day of the week. What's the first day of the week? We call it Sunday. The Bible calls it the first day of the week. Now let me just say something about it. Days, as it were. 
You know, I've known some people who don't celebrate Christmas. They don't celebrate Christmas because they believe it's connected to paganism. Okay? Now, it is true, there are certain things that are involved in Christmas that the pagans did, but it's not automatic guilt by association, as it were. And should we not celebrate our Lord and celebrate, as it were, his birth and death and resurrection every day? So when they said, well, I'm not celebrating Christmas, I just say, okay, so that would be fine, I guess. It's between you and the Lord, according to Romans 14. So I guess that was one day of the week you won't celebrate the Lord Jesus' birth, huh? One day of the year. Now, as a result of that, I sometimes say to them, can I ask you a question? Since you operate under guilt by association. I said, what do you call the first day of the week? And they'll say, Sunday. And I said, really? What do you call the second day of the week? Monday. And I said, really? What do you call the fourth day of the week? Thursday. And I said, do you know all those names come from pagan deities? Sunday. They worship the sun. Moon day was Monday. Thor's day was Thursday. So do you use a lot of terminology? Or are you violating scripture? No, it's just terminology. When I say Thursday, I never think of Thor. <laughs> I mean, most of you probably didn't even know that until I explained it. And so if it's inextricably connected, like... 1 Corinthians chapter 10 talks about attending pagan feasts where they're worshiping deities and there's demons behind them. Now that's an area that's not an area of liberty. But again, meat offered to idols was handled in a very different way. Now go with me, if you would, to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. In Acts chapter 20, verse 6, we read, but we sailed away from Philippi. By the way, Luke is writing. Luke was with them. We sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days joined them at Troas, where we stayed seven days. Now, on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread... Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. Now, what do we learn from that? Well, we learn a number of things. Number one, the disciples did come together. Isn't that what a local church is all about? Number two, when did they come together? On the first day of the week. What day is that? We call it Sunday, right? Number three, we see Paul was ready to depart the next day, spoke to them. And continued his message until midnight. That means they met at night. So should we meet at night? And if we don't meet at night, we're not really biblical? This is descriptive. It's not prescriptive. And notice he preached until midnight and you thought I was long. You know why they met probably at night? It's because a lot of them were slaves and had to work during the day. Furthermore, they met on the first day of the week. Question, why did they not meet on the Sabbath? 
because they again were celebrating the resurrection of Christ. On the other hand, are we ever mandated that we must worship on the first day of the week? The answer is no. You could worship on the Sabbath without being a Sabbath keeper. In fact, when my son and his wife went over to Israel a few years ago, and they met with believers there in Tel Aviv, in doing so, they would attend church, an evangelical church that met on Saturday. Why did they meet on Saturday? Because they were Sabbath keepers? No, because everyone was off on Saturday. That was the time to meet. That's when they were free, because they worked on what we call Sunday. Anything wrong with that? No. Anything wrong with meeting on Sunday? No. How about Monday night? How about Thursday night? How? No. The Bible doesn't mandate this, though we, it does model meeting on the first day of the week. And we have some indication as to why that was the case. Now, again, they weren't meeting on the Sabbath. If they were strict Sabbath keepers, if the Sabbath was for today, you would think they would be meeting on the Sabbath, but they're not. Now, some have a little sleight of hand here, and they will say, well, the promises given to Israel in the Old Testament are being spiritually fulfilled in the church today. That's Reformed or that's replacement theology. And so we don't worship on Saturday because that was under the law. We worship on our Christian Sabbath Sunday. Do you know there's not one verse in the New Testament that teaches us to, that we, or calls the first day of the week the Christian Sabbath? You don't see that at all. In fact, you see just the opposite being warned. I'd like you to go to Colossians 2 before we bring this part to a close and have a break and pick it up during our next hour. Colossians chapter 2. And in our next hour, we will look at some principles about the Sabbath as we work our way through this passage. Colossians chapter 2. Now, our memory verses for this month are verses 6, 7, and 8. As you have therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, how? By faith in him as sufficient and supreme. He's Christ Jesus the Lord. So walk in him in the very same manner. Rooted, literally having been rooted and presently being built up in him and presently being established in the faith, the truths of the word of God, as you have been taught. That's what Christians need, abounding in it with thanksgiving. But notice chapter 2, verse 16. Or verse 14. Jesus Christ, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and having taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. What did he nail to the cross? Well, he nailed the law as a word of the cross. The writing of requirements. Verse 15, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them in it. So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, 
which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. Notice, these things in the Old Testament, these festivals, were a shadow of Jesus Christ, things to come. So was the Sabbath, as it were, shadow of thing to come. But the substance, the reality, is of Christ. All these things cast their shadow towards the Lord Jesus Christ, as it were. And by the way, none of the feasts are a type or a fulfillment, as it were, of the church. Just want to be very clear. I was talking to a pastor from England yesterday, and he's teaching on the feasts, and that was one of the things we talked about. Because remember, the church was an Old Testament mystery. You don't find it in Genesis 24. You don't find it in the Song of Solomon. You don't find it anywhere. When someone tells me you're finding the rapture in the Old Testament, they're reading something into the Bible. But all these things cast their shadow. The Passover, did it not picture the Lord Jesus Christ? So that 1 Corinthians 5, 7 says that Christ is our Passover. They were a shadow of things to come. But the reality is of Christ. So I like to use the illustration. Imagine that you were in the military and you were sent to go to some conflict in the world. And while you're there, again, you, you have a picture of your, your wife or maybe your kids. Or you're able to zoom and you see them and, you know, you're like, boy, it's so good to see you. This is great, da-da-da-da-da. And then finally, one day, you come home. And when you come home, you knock on the door, they open the door, and you kiss the zoom picture on your computer. Who in their right mind would ever do that when you can kiss the real thing? And you see, Old Testament was a shadow. These things were a shadow of things to come. But now the reality is here. Why would you go back and kiss the Old Testament picture when you've got the real deal in the Lord Jesus Christ is the idea. And that is why the Sabbath It's a picture of the Sabbath rest that Christ provided for us through his finished work on the cross. But the Bible nowhere teaches that believers are under the law, whether it's tithing or whether it's Sabbath keeping. And we'll look at that after our break. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you again for the Lord Jesus Christ and all the blessings we have in him. And while we didn't get very far in our handout during this hour, Father, we know we covered a number of things that were very important to understand. And we just want to thank you again that while the law was given by Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And as a result, we thank you for your wonderful grace. May we learn that we're not only justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, but we live the Christian life the very same way, lest that yoke of bondage hinders our walk and causes us to be estranged in our fellowship from Christ and produce in us even a self-righteousness on the one hand or a despair on the other, as the law and the sin nature are not a good combination. And so, Father, continue to deepen our understanding of these matters, we pray, including this issue of grace-giving. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.